Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Welcome to Life on Mars, the podcast of Mars Space, where we talk entrepreneurship, innovation, and business. We talk a lot of things. Uh, we talk about a lot of things. We talk with friends. And in this case, in this episode, we want to bring you Christina Avila from Kadara. You heard about them a few episodes back, maybe five, six episodes back with uh, her co-founder, Brad. And it was, it, was, it was a good occasion because they were fundraising. Actually, Christina should have been there, but she was busy as the CEO leading the, the fundraising efforts of the company. And we thought it would be a great idea to, to sort of compensate that by having her explain how did the fundraising process go from a sales perspective, which sounds a little bit complex, but I think we're going to get into it. So how to approach, uh, approach the VCs, how to, how to control the pipeline, how to, what's the ratio of their responses and how, which ones transition to the part of their faces and uh, in all the process of the of the fundraising. So for this and more than that, we have Christina here tonight. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. That's a very, very kind intro for, for both Cledara, uh, myself and Brad, of course. And, um, and yes, I, I think that, look, fundraising is the task number one of any founder, I think. So it's something that whether we like it or not, we need to end up mastering. Uh, because it's something that if the company goes well, you keep you have to keep doing. So, so yeah, very very happy, obviously, to share all you know how we've approached it and and how 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 it's gone, how it's been. Actually, let me challenge you with that because in our audience, because we're purely bootstrap company, most of our audience are more into the bootstrap companies space, so they are not used to fundraising. I think it will mm-hmm. it will be useful to also give visibility to this sort of of practices in business and maybe you know some businesses are bootstrapped and eventually they hit a phase in which they want to raise capital i'm thinking of companies like sketch that uh, you know we had a few episodes back they're a huge company they just reached 300 people multi-million uh, multi-million dollar business and never fundraised anything but Last year, two years ago, they decided to go fundraising just to go big, right? So it's good. It's good. It's actually, you're never tired or married to one of the of the two models. In your case, I mean, we know already what Clara is. If you want to give 10 seconds blurb of what, what the company does to refresh the memory of our of our audience. And then when did you start, what stage you're at right now? So what, what kind of round is it that you were raising? Yes. So, well, Cledara, yeah, very, very brief. So we are a, a platform where we help companies discover, buy, manage, and cancel their software subscriptions because, as we all know, software is everywhere and SaaS is everywhere, and, and it becomes very hard to, to manage when you have 50 or 100 different subscriptions in a business. So we, we are here to, to help with that problem. Um, in terms of where we are at, at the moment, we are at, uh, at the seed stage. So we, and we've done already two fundraisings before. So we did an angel round when Pedara was just a PowerPoint idea. And, and then we did a, a pre-seed round one year after. And now a seed round a year after the pre-seed. So we are doing, um, um, 
around per year, essentially, at the moment. Which is somewhat standard practice, right? One of the things about fundraising, if you're the kind of company that's VC-backed or uh, backed by funding, is that at the moment you get the money in the bank, the countdown is on you, right? So you, you need to start thinking about the next round, which creates sort of a vicious circle, right? So I think it's hard for, for me or for people who are in bootstrap businesses, which is essentially we are financed by clients, so we don't have this sort of countdown. Our countdown might be, you know, the amount of money you get in the bank. If you don't make enough money or you don't make a profit every month, therefore your, you know, your reserves in the bank are not increasing every month. But for a lot of companies, it's not like that. So they're more like in your kind of, in your kind of model, which brings me to the question of, how much time you as a CEO, what percentage of your time do you spend doing fundraising? Uh, so I think I spend probably during fundraising, like during the actual fundraising period, I would say 50% plus of my time. So a lot of time because you have to prepare for the meetings, you have to prepare materials, you have to think about, you know, have a very, very clear plan on what you want to achieve with the fun with the funds that you will receive right because you say that on bootstrap companies unless you do uh, you have a profit every every month that is you know you, you have a problem essentially mm-hmm. in in our case when we receive the funds we need to make sure that we know how to deploy it so that within the time frame that we have we can raise our subsequent round having achieved the milestones that we had set the company to achieve so so that's very very important and so yeah so it is a time consuming exercise fundraising um, obviously is a necessary one for bc backed uh, companies and and just to give you um an idea right so the way we approach it on a ways is even like um like a like a sales process right so mm-hmm. in the end you need to reach to a lot of uh, different investors to make sure that you know you you get to one and it's uh, so so essentially we we've been lucky i would say because we had uh, a list of 150 plus investors when we decided to start raising and that's because already from so we went we went through techstars as a business there we met a lot of investors that were very interested on what cladara was set out to to solve as a problem and then when we did our pre-seed, also it was announced in TechCrunch, which was uh, again it raised a lot of awareness about us, and and it means that during all this period a lot of VCs have been reaching out to us, and also we had a list of those that we wanted to make sure we spoke with, right? So so this combined gave us like a, a hundred and fifty plus investors. Then when we decided that it was time to fundraise again. What we did is we sat down with um, with Farhan, that is uh, the person from Anthemus, that uh, that's in our board, um, and then we we decided a bit on the on the strategy, right? How do we want to approach 
the, the fundraising, how much do we want to raise, which type of investor do we need? Uh, so there is a lot of thinking behind before you start fundraising. And, and then also do we want to try to squeeze it into, you know, like run a very tight process or do we want to do it over a longer period of time? And, and yeah, so then we, we did that. We decided on how we wanted to do it and off we went to start reaching out to investors. We contacted 110 investors and, uh, and from those, then we ended up having first calls with around 95 of them. Which is a really great uh, picture, actually. So, okay. yes, yeah, I have to say it was uh, quite quite good there. And then with um, we passed on to the next, you know, second call, third call, fourth call, with uh, with forty of them. And and then from there, four and more calls. It was like eleven investors, and those were the ones that were really, really very interested, right? Because from both sides, you need to decide whether there is a fit. So sometimes an investor might be very interested, but maybe they don't have the the things that we are looking for, and maybe sometimes we are interested in them, but we don't have the we are we are not ready uh, to their eyes for their investment. Mm-hmm. And, and then from those 11 uh, investors with whom we progressed uh, the calls all the way to partner meetings and, and lots of uh, back and forth of questions, mm-hmm. um, we ended up with three term sheets. All right. So from a total of 150, you said, in the beginning, so more or less? So we had 150 in yeah. our Trello board <laughs> yeah. to start with. We reached out, of those 150, we reached out to 110. Yeah, 110. Yeah, we said 110. To, to end up with three term sheets, of which uh, one of them was the lead investor. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we had uh, existing investors following on. Okay, let's focus. We'll stop in each stage, right? Because this is like a sales pipeline. That's why I thought interesting about this episode is that because I'm, you know, I'm leading sales in the company at Mars Beach, right? Mm-hmm. And so therefore, I'm very familiar with the different stages of the pipeline. I know you got different kind of actions that you do here and there. Uh, perhaps people in bigger companies, they do have playbooks, right? They say like, if there's interest, that's a qualified deal. Therefore, you should send them this material. You should schedule a call, like two, three things in every stage, you will change. In every stage, you will have fewer participants, right? Fewer companies progressing from one stage to the other. Before we go into the pipeline, however, mm-hmm. you said that you have got the access to these 150 plus companies. How do you maintain relationship with all of them? Like, do you actually do it or not? It's just a few of them. Some of them are reached out, you know, cold emails and whatever, how do you keep a place in mind? How do you have mental bandwidth to have 150 plus relationships with VCs only? So, I mean, structure, right? So, and the, as I mentioned, so through Techstars, we met a lot mm-hmm. of them in person through, you know, investor lunches that they organize through uh, Mentor Madness as well. And, um, so, so that was very that was very good for for us because it gave us it gave us those connections. Uh, then also, but Brad, my co-founder, uh, he's known several investors from companies where they've raised money before, so he also could leverage his own network. 
And, and then for those that we didn't know, but we wanted an introduction, we always ask someone to introduce. So I don't think we've called email any investor. Uh, we've always tried to find someone to make the introduction. And then the, and, and here is where I think we've been very lucky. I think Cledara has been uh, very topical since the day that started. Um, and, and therefore we've been able to attract attention from investors. So I would say the majority of the 150, we have a relationship because they initiated the, the, the connection. So they wanted to, they heard about Cledara somewhere and therefore they wanted to speak with us. I would also have to say that uh, very early on when we went to Sastock, uh, when we could still go to conferences and we won the, the competition there when we were just, you know, three months into Cledara, the, um, there, there were also a lot of investors that we spoke with uh, on the spot when they saw it. And that was also a, a very good place where we where we met with a lot of investors early on with whom we've maintained the relationship now how do we maintain the relationship Correct. again it's like uh it's like customers right so we have uh you send the email you you connect you have a conversation you schedule a follow-up for you know okay let's chat in six months and we send our investor updates where we explain the investors what we've done through that. If at some point they see something that really interests them, they reach out. So, so it's really like, you know, you need to have a CRM for, for investors. I was going to say, I was going to say, because yeah. one of the things, one of the challenges by doing it, like when, once the company is more mature, obviously you've got existing relationships and then they got new relationships, which get mixed, Right. And uh, it's easy to get confused by like, oh, wow, what stage are we at with this VC, right? Do we have an existing relationship? Do we not, right? So you need to stop it. So what CRM are you using for that? And are you using any other tool for tracking this? So at the moment, so we don't use a, a CRM per se. So we are using a Trello for it, for investors okay. at, at the moment. Yeah, so we okay. have a, a column with all the investors. And then we say, as soon as we speak with them, we classify them, right? We say, okay, this one uh, is not suitable for seed stage, but it's suitable for Series A. And they are interested in speaking for Series A. So then we put them in the right bucket. Uh, then okay. if they say they are not interested, then we say, okay, why are they not interested so that we have it recorded? If they, um, if they are interested, then obviously we, we put them in the, in the column of, okay, they are interested and now we are waiting next steps or is it for us to provide any material? So it really is as in, in a sales process. And then everyone's, um, every, during fundraising, I would say every couple of days, we go to Trello and then we check, okay, who is where and do we need to prod someone? Do we, are we, are they owing us an answer or did we hear any feedback? And then we, we follow up. So it's very much, uh, that's how we approach it because I think it's the, uh, it's the only way to, to be on top of it because in our case in particular, we were speaking to a lot of investors at the same time, which means that you can lose track of it very easily if you are not very organized with it. That's, that's a really good assist. Thank you for that. Organization, right? Why? It's essential because one thing that happens with VCs that perhaps doesn't happen with a sales processes, right? 
I'll start the other way around. Sales processes, clients are going to come to us when they need something and it's really shit is burning, right? And they're like, I need this now. However, VCs like to play it cool and hard to catch, right? And they want to start conversations way before your fundraising, right? Because first of all, they like to have a relationship. They like to see your process. It's actually a way to actually starve you off as well, right? Because like, yeah, it's, you're too early for us right now. Let's talk in six months. Let's talk in a year. Let's talk when you're serious A, right? Also, they play it cool so that, you know, when you reach, you're probably, when you go for fundraising, you're a bit in desperation, right? Companies are running low on cash. I need to raise funds. And therefore, uh, you know, maybe there are conditions, they will be more strict in the conditions and you will have to, you know, give in because you're tight on cash. But we'll, we're going to get into that later. However, what I'm interested here is the timing, right? How do you keep the reminders? What's the, how do you keep the dates? Are like, is it, you said the reminders on Trello, like, oh, we need to talk to these guys right now. It's six months before the uh, the fundraising. Do we, you, we need to talk to, I don't know, Atomico, Target Global, uh, whomever, right? How do you manage the dates and the reminders, especially when all of them are different, right? And all of them have got also their reply rates and, and response times, right? Yes. I mean, so... so and I'm going back... I will go back to some of the things you mentioned on, on the intro, but so... Essentially, the the reminder is at that point in time we so we said the we send the the email and you know how at least Google has this functionality where you can snooze the you can snooze the the message and then you just say, okay pop back in in one week correct yeah or pop back in two days depending on how the conversation went or depending on on you know would you agree during that call or if you've just sent an email and they haven't come back then yeah after three four days I think depending on the type of relation that you've had with that VC in the past then you know whether you need to give them two days or one week or maybe they've told you look we are very busy now so let's speak in two so I think uh Maybe it's very basic, but just, you know, the, the snooze functionality of the email on, on Google, that's how we were tracking that. And on the to get the overview of the picture, it was on the Trello. So anything that was, okay, we are, this customer is, I'm sorry, this customer, this, um, this VC is interested and we are in conversations with them. They were all in the same column. So we could say, okay, we have uh, 20 that we are speaking with at this point in time. So then, then that's what gave us the the overview. It must be difficult because some of them they will be like, you know, uh, I think I saw a tweet the other day. It was really good. It says, "I've got two types of response. Uh, I think it was like response speed or reply speed on email. It's either twenty seconds or three weeks, right? <laughs> so I take it that some VCs will be right away replying back because for whatever reason you got a better relationship. Maybe they're better at email." Maybe they don't have that much deal for the present moment, but some of them, they will just like, maybe they're interested, but they will come back so late in time when you're already progressing so much with others, right? So it's hard to sort of coordinate this, right? And while most of them, they will be at one stage, these guys want to catch up. Ah, how to do that? Like, how do you manage the expectations with the ones that are lagging behind, but you really want them? Like, this is the, the ideal VC, but they're so fucking slow answering my emails. But we really want them. How to manage that? 
in the end, it has to be a relationship that goes both ways, right? And and I think that if if you are not the priority for them, no matter how much you like them, maybe you need to then find someone else. So I think that's uh, that's very important because you don't want to be like sometimes if they don't answer, if if you don't make it top of the list that they answer to you within a day or two days, on a way is that they are not interested. And I would say it's, it can happen, of course, that you overlook something because you are very busy and it's totally possible. And that's why it's always good to follow up after two, three days if you haven't heard anything. But if after that you still don't hear, then I would say, okay, they are not interested. And of course, you don't look in the end. Investors need to have their deal flow. They if you more or less fit into their thesis, they will have the conversation. They will check the box that they've had the conversation and they will say, oh, well, look, we are not interested because we think, and they will come up with some so they, some reason why they don't want to, to progress with the deal. But in any case, I think there is still value on having the conversations because you learn, right? Like you learn how to pitch, you learn how to be clear, you learn the the types of um, objections that they may have, and again, something that we did was uh, create a document with the questions that we were getting from VCs, right? So that then we can learn from it, and then we say, okay, this is a common question. Everybody has the same thing, so maybe either we are not explaining correctly, or is a concern in the market. So let's explore it, and then little by little, you learn how to present in a very short space of time there is a half an hour intro call uh, once you know and, and you need to introduce yourself as people and, and as a fan right essentially you have what 15 minutes to to explain uh, what you do so you have to be so precise and and so to the point so that the other person understands it that 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 practice is actually super super helpful and and that's why I would say it's very important that you speak to a lot of investors, a lot. Actually, I've heard of companies that they do some practice before going for the real fundraising. Maybe they target, I think it's not nice to do that, but maybe they target some VCs they really don't want to have just to have this sort of introduction uh, calls, practice the pitching mm -hmm. and see, get like some early feedback. But in your case, let's talk about the language, right? Um, we're progressing from all the companies you contacted in the beginning. And let's talk about how do they transition to their interest, right? First off, when do you understand that there's no interest at all besides not getting a response maybe? Or what are the, like the, the common objections you get as a startup? What are the ones you, you got precisely? So for us, what uh, what we started to see is that, look, if it's okay. Some people say, don't speak to associates. We think that that's not right. So we are very happy speaking with associates and taking that call and, and learning about the fund and, and what they are looking for and what's important for them. The I would say the important thing is if after the first or second call, you are not speaking to a partner, then I would say probably they are not interested. Right? They are not progressing the deal. And therefore, at that point, it's like, look, you know, let's let's leave it here because if we are not progressing, then you know we'd rather spend our limited time somewhere else. And so I would say that's that's one of them. And 
then sometimes, yeah, they, you have a half an hour call and you get an answer saying, you know, something very generic uh, as to why they don't want to progress the deal. Then, well, that, that very clearly says that they are not interested, but I would say maybe they are not even interested in learning more. And is that because we didn't do a good job on the first call or maybe actually we don't, we don't fit that well into their thesis and they thought we did? And, and I think it's very important to, to clarify the reasons why they choose not to not to move forward. But, um, I'm sorry, cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 no worries. <laughs> I was going to say then conversely on the other side, you've got people who are really interested in you, right? Um, you know, it's kind of like, when you get butterflies in the summer with somebody else, I guess that it might be, I haven't done fundraising myself, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes there is a match. Like I've seen it in sales processes. Um, sometimes there's a match. Like you really want to work for that company. That company wants to hire you. And you said, you know what? We're going to find an agreement. Uh, we know we're going to work together, right? Um, have you gotten any of these? And if so, what was the message that you got from them? Like, is it the, what you said, right? Maybe they, they give you like a, a call with a partner really right away or do they show you the term sheet right away? What happens when you're really got genuine interest in moving forward from day one? What I've noticed is that, so by the way, we have never had a term sheet on first call out of, you know, we are in love with Cladara. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's always taken some time. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet, uh, but yeah, so the, um, I would say what, what usually happens is there is a very good chemistry, like at a personal level, like you get along very well with that person, you feel safe talking about the good and the bad, you feel that there is trust from very early on, and, and then what, um, what happens is that you speak more often to that particular person in that particular fund. And because you speak more often, they know more about you, you know more about them, both at the professional level, but also personal level. And at the point in time when through the obviously interaction of learning about your business, they decide that they want to invest or, you know, they, they have a strong reason why they would want to invest. At that point, they become like your internal champion. Right? Like there is one person in the fund that becomes your internal champion on helping you navigate the process. And I think that's very important. Like you need to feel that there is that figure that helps you with, okay, what do the what does the fund care about? What is the what does the partner uh, really care about in a company? And we are gonna speak with him next week, right? So let's uh, let's make sure we are prepared. But here, obviously, the company like we were asking questions, right? Because it's important, the same as you would do when you are in a sales process. Again, like you need to go to talk to the decision maker. You have somebody in the company that is a sponsor of the project, so they will help you navigate through the company, right? They will tell you, look, say these, try to avoid these. And, and when you find that a fund gives you that time to help you navigate the process, then you know that they want to do it, right? Because in the end, they've, they've, they like you, they like the idea, they like the team, and they believe in the opportunity. And then it's a, it's a procedural thing. It seems to me that it's, you know, you've been reading my mind because my next question was going to be, okay, so now you've contacted a lot of companies. They've gone through the next stage of the pipeline. 
And then, you know, one thing is to receive interest, which is like kind of like, yeah, okay, I want to hear more. You go into this first mm-hmm. call, maybe a second call, but how do you qualify the, uh, how do you qualify the VCs, right? How do you qualify their interest? Seems to me that it's finding this champion, right? Inside the company. Is there any other criteria that you have in order to say like, well, there's these three things you, we need to check in order to make sure that this VC goes into the qualified column. Is there something else besides finding the champion? No, 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 absolutely. So I think finding a champion is, is mostly to, to help you move quickly and forward, right, uh, through, the, through the process. But for us to qualify an investor, again, we've had a lot of conversations with them and, and you know, we, we, we stopped some of the conversations because, well, maybe the VC was interested, but they didn't have what we were looking for. And, for example, in, in the investors, uh, the, so Anthemus that invested previously, they were a fintech investor uh, because, obviously, Cladara has a fintech element, and that was very important at the time. And now, because we are also in the SaaS a space. So this time we wanted to make sure that we had on board an investor that had a lot of SaaS experience. So I think for us, there were se- several criteria of things that we were looking from an investor and they had to check those ones. And if they didn't have them, then well, probably they are not the ones for us. So for our future uh, round, we will want someone that has a strong presence in the US because if we are thinking of expanding towards that at some point, that's going to be a, a gating criteria on our side, right? So I think the those are some of the of the things that when you are preparing your fundraising strategy, you think about, okay, what are the key things that we need the investor to help us with, which is not just the pure funds, right? Like, the, the the money that they disperse so there has to be more how about then red flags right because there comes a time in a sales process or even in dating right you progress you start talking more and more seriously but you see a red flag like a huge red flag uh, what are the red flags that you've seen in some of the vcs that you say like no we really don't want to have that like is, has there been any super obvious thing that you didn't because you don't know at the beginning right but maybe you just get to learn uh, about the vcs and it's like well this vc doesn't have like a really diverse portfolio for instance that might be a red flag or they have this company maybe they wouldn't have a competing company right but like companies are like ethically uh so i don't know what were the red flags and how do you qualify the vcs from your point of view I mean, it's true that we always check the portfolio to see, you know, which type of companies do they have. And of course, if there is any competing one, and we always ask if we think there is something that is competing, we check uh, before we initiate the conversations. Um, but I would say at this stage, because it's so important that um, the the fund or the investor, or the partner that will be on your board, it's so important that they trust you. And it's so important that you have a good relationship. So that you can, you know, all put yourselves behind the company to push it forward. I think that for me, the biggest red flag is when you feel that you cannot have a good discussion. So sometimes you have calls where it's just question and answer, question and answer, question and answer. And it's okay, next, 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 check, 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 check. 
And it's like, well, you're actually, you're only interested in filling in a form. Like you're not actually interested in understanding why we're doing it or why it's important, who are we, and and have that dialogue, right? And And I think it's very important that later on when you are sitting, I don't know, having an issue with the company or celebrating something with the company, right? That you are able to just not say, well, it was... 20 and we reached 25. No, okay, but what was around it? You know, what, tell me more about this story and help us understand so that we can help you more. So I don't know if I'm being clear here, but essentially is being able to, to really have an honest conversation with them where you feel that you can trust in the moments where things will go wrong. Uh, because I think that that's that's critical. And sometimes very early on, you see that, okay, this person doesn't listen to what we are saying. They have their own idea and they are not willing to, to change their mind or to listen to our arguments. And it's natural that, you know, we will have different opinions on things. And if if already, you know, in a, let's say, one-hour call, somebody says, well, Cledara should do this, and if you don't do this, then you're wrong. Okay, that's not someone that uh, we will be able to work with because things are never black or white. And today we may think that it's this road, but in two weeks, maybe we think that it's slightly to the left. And we all need to be able to adapt our thinking and being able to say, okay, yeah, look, let's let's go slightly left. <laughs> about when they qualify you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to learn from the feedback of people who discard you, right? But if you go too early in the beginning of the funnel, like they are not really qualified. So maybe their opinion doesn't really matter that much as to like as the other ones on the end of the funnel that, you know, maybe just five or 10, like in your case, you mentioned there are only three made it to the really end of it, right? They are really good. That's, that's, that's where you should focus. That's uh, like the, the feedback you should listen the most, you know, with most attention to. Um, how do you know you're being qualified there? You're probably like, you know, there's probably people asking you like the form, taking the, the boxes mm-hmm. and everything. But, and first of all, how do you take it as a founder? Like, you know what, you're being validated there. And how do you post process this in order to prepare for the next meeting, right? Do you actually study? Do you do post mortems? Do you trade it in your like your board meetings internally, or how do you process this feedback? So when they send us yeah uh, an email where they say, well, we don't want, we will not progress because of such and such. Uh, where possible, we try to always understand farther because uh, emails can be very generic sometimes, and. And then if if we've spent some time with that fun, then yeah, we ask for a for a call to to understand more. And usually uh, there is a misunderstanding of an item of the you know the company that led to that decision, and that's okay. Uh, and again, here we learn that maybe we didn't explain something correctly because you know we see it so obviously that if others don't is because yeah, again maybe it's uh, we are not. Uh, explaining it well enough uh, so we always take the feedback the um, the 
So I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> About the feedback, like um, when when you, you're not even, like sometimes you're not given the opportunity to present, like to discuss the proposal. Yeah. Right? Yeah, sometimes it's this. We've had these calls where it's just a checkbox exercise, and um, which we hate, by the way. And um, and we they say no after that. And for me, it's just that, well, they, they were probably not as interested to start with. And I want to believe that maybe they have a target of speaking with X amount of companies a month. So they are trying to hit their target. And and then they just say no because of some random thing, which might be oh, too much competition or the market is too small and things like that. But they are not really, really very um, correct, I would say. That's That sounds awful. Like I've never heard such a thing, but then again, I'm not in the BC space, but I didn't know they have targets to speak to many companies. Perhaps of I mean, I don't, as I say, I don't know if they do. I, I, I believe right. they do because um, wow. sometimes, you know, the, the so. people, they, they reach out far and wide because in the end, the more conversations you have with companies, the more you can then assess the market, you can learn about the space. Uh, and, and therefore, then if at some point you see a company that, is better than all the other all the other ones that you spoke in that space. Then maybe you want to progress that one forward. But I think that they they really use a lot of those intercalls to scope the the market. Makes sense because like as you know, the, the market has changed a lot and significantly since the last 10 years where mm -hmm. now there's a lot more startups and there's a way lot more VCs. Therefore, they're competing for the same deals and yeah. They cannot play hard to catch nowadays that much as they used to have because you, they know that if they will be missing out on great opportunities like you guys, right? For instance, they're saying, "Wow, I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to lose." At the same time, because they have more structure, they have more deal flow. Perhaps they, they, they maybe they need to go into those practices. Well, let me go to the next to the next stage. So, is one of the things that happens in sales processes is you know on average. The um, you will reach an agreement if you have had conversations for at least eight times during the, the sales process, right? Very rarely you will sign a contract before conversation number eight, right? So the more you speak, like the more conversations you do with somebody, which, you know, correlates to the interest they have towards you, the more likely or the closer you are to the transaction, right? Yeah. So does that happen like with you as well? On average, how many conversations have you had with the ones that made it to the final? Many. <laughs> And what I is many? By, Can you quantify? By then, but, oof, uh, is it eight ten, or is it like ten, 20? Ten, ten plus. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, because some are short, some are long, some are more formal, so some are more informal. So I would say of the formal ones... Mm, like where you set up a, a call and now this is next, I would say four or five uh, of the formal calls, but then there are a lot of informal ones. And I think by that stage, you already have the phone number of, of each other and, and, you know, you, you give people a call or you send a WhatsApp, or, Hey, what's going on. And I think at that point, you know, that there is genuine interest when, you know, calls are, are happening and, and WhatsApps are taking place. And yeah, this is when you go into like, oh, I just received a call from I don't know 
0.9 capital, right? At 11 p.m. or 1 a.m., do you take that call? Like, does that happen? Be, does it intensify the relationship to the point where they can call you anytime to ask for, you know, new metric or this document because you know you're getting really close to the deal? Like, does that happen? Well, yeah, yeah, I've had calls on a what's Saturday that morning. Yeah, yeah, I've had calls on a Saturday morning. I've had calls on, you know, 11 oh, p.m. at night on a Friday. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. and it happens because, you know, you want to make sure that you don't lose it because at some point, you know, in the end, the investors don't know how many other funds you are speaking with. And we we tend to give a, a, a sense of, look, we have these other many interested that we are progressing. We are at a similar stage. We don't tend to give a lot of information because in the end, look, uh, a fan may decide not to continue or they may want to keep it private until they take the decision. So we respect that always. Um, but yes, there is once, once they've taken the decision that they want to progress, then they don't want to lose. And that's normal, right? You don't want to lose against someone else because you've been too slow. So then everything accelerates and then you need to start moving quickly. Okay. Remind me how many companies, how many VCs made it to the qualified stage? Like they're not, not, not maybe the term sheet, but the, the, the step before that one. We had 11. 11. Okay. Okay. That's, that's a really good number because usually at, you know, at Mars Base, we have between 10 to 12, 15, maybe on a good, on a good period of qualified prospects that we need to work on. And that's where we send the proposal. We're talking to them. Seems like this is going somewhere potentially might lead to a project. However, not all of them play on the same field, right? Because some mm -hmm. projects are smaller some projects have got more like an imminent start date and, and some others are like, yeah, it's a nice to have, like, we're going to do this project, but it can be put off like six months into the future. So you start qualifying, like you start ranking them and even discarding them. You know that you cannot work on the 11 of them. Maybe let's, let's mm -hmm. make this exercise, right? Maybe it's like, you know, you cannot possibly have all the mental bandwidth or efforts or time or whatever to work on 11 of them. So you decide to discard a number of them. Does that happen? Like, we do it. We say, like, sorry, we cannot, we got too many proposals to write. We do have these projects. And first we rank them, and then a couple of them will just decide not to work on them because we cannot possibly prepare 15 proposals in 15 days. That's why we usually take this, you know, 15 days to, to write a proposal tops, right? So it's hard, but you know there's an opportunity cost, and you need to kind of, like, prune that that part that that trello that trello mm -hmm. column right? because otherwise you will lose the ones on the top you need to maximize the efforts how do you do it then so you, you only rank them you discard a few of them how did you manage this so we don't discard anyone so so we would only not progress those ones where we think that there is not a fit and this can come either way right either the vc says there is not a fit or we think that there is not a fit and therefore we say look let's leave it here and but I would say it happens rarely because, again, then maybe you will progress it more slowly, but you will still progress it, right? And we always try to, you know, if people have following quests, as long as, you know, we've only, let's say, stopped some of them because they ask question after question after question, and we don't see how that's actually progressing the deal. 
And and in those cases, we say, look, this is just very onerous and we don't know where this is going. And and therefore, unless you give us a, a clear uh, path of, you know, where we are and, and towards where we are going and what are the next steps, then we, we just don't, don't continue. Uh, because it looks more, again, like scoping the market, understanding about the market, but not, not actually making a deal. And, and yeah, so, so for me, that's, that's how, that's how we, that's how we do it. We progress, we progress with everything with, we had, uh, yeah, with those 11, uh, that is the ones that we, we spend more time with. Uh, we, we didn't drop any. Uh, did you want all of them in? Obviously, you had to choose. We could right? have had, yeah, we could have in the okay. sense that in the end, obviously, you only raise so many funds. Yeah, and right. uh, of course, if you would uh, be raising a very, you know, if you wanted to raise more than what you need, then maybe you could fit some of those in as following investors. But, uh, you know, the, the ones that I mentioned is mostly for the lead investor, right? Uh, because, uh, as you know, so there is a lead investor that is the one that sets the terms and does all the most of the the DD work, and then there are the the investors that follow on the deal, and and then again here you need to think how you want to structure that, like who will be able to follow and who will not be able to to participate. And how was your distribution? Like, did you lead all the conversations? Did you distribute that, split them with your co-founder? How did you do that? Uh, the majority we did them together uh, because we think it's important that they see the the interaction between the two of us and and I think even for us as as founders That's a good point. Yeah. sometimes you catch something that the other one doesn't catch and vice versa. So I think that's that's uh, important to be two in the calls. Then as we progress, uh, sometimes we split. Because then, okay, we already know them. Now we, maybe there was more rapport with one or the other. And therefore that one takes the lead on progressing that deal until then maybe there is another meeting with a third partner or something. So then the two of us uh, join again. So whenever there is someone new in the call, we try to always uh, do it together. However, that trade-off, you know, even if, you know, the two of you being in the conversations, that might increase the chances and the likelihood of landing that investment. However, that divides your attention and, and, and definitely you cannot take as many meetings as you wanted. So it must be really hard to calibrate that. Um, just wanted to, 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 to clear yeah. out that. The, the mm-hmm. thing is, um, due diligence. Like, let's just stop for a couple minutes here because I think that's something that maybe not every entrepreneur knows, but they are being audited when they go into investment. Maybe not so much for like super early investments, but the farther down you progress on like, you know, sit down, maybe like definitely for Series A, Series B, et cetera, et cetera, even like for acquisitions, there's a due diligence process there. How long does it last and what areas were inspected in your case? what, What were you audited about? Everything. So from... We had tax due diligence where they check, you know, yeah. It's mostly financials, financials, legal. Yeah, tax, Sometimes technology, but yeah, what were your cases? We did everything. So tax due diligence, financial due diligence, legal due diligence, uh, tech due diligence, and then obviously the business uh, due diligence. So we did them all. 
And it okay. does take time because you have to gather documents of uh, absolutely everything. I think then here some some funds will go more or less in depth. I have to say we had uh, you know heavy diligence on for this round, but equally I think what proved is that we are in a good position because we were able to supply everything. The results of the diligence were very positive. There was almost nothing that we had to amend as, oh my God, this is, you know, you haven't done anything on this side. So, so we were good. We were in a good place. And I, and I think that's largely because in the previous round, in the pre-seed, we already had an institutional investor. So we already had Anthemus. And there we already had DD. And even though we were a three people company, we already established, uh, you know, some processes and we already had, um, uh, a bit of a structure that, you know, then you start growing with. I think when sometimes you have uh, maybe angel rounds that are bigger before you have an institutional investor, then there, there are more, maybe more issues when you have the first institutional investor because you need to put a lot of things in place that you didn't have before. Like, I don't know, maybe you need, you didn't sign any board resolutions or you didn't sign any, um, I don't know, your employment contracts are not, you just took a template from the internet and they don't cover everything that they should cover. The IP assignments are not right. So all these things are being looked at and then you need to do a lot of work to bring all these things up to date before the investor is comfortable investing. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know much about this because um, we, we actually, we got contacted by a lot of VCs and mm-hmm. M&A firms to audit the companies they're going to buy or they're going to invest in, right? And I did some research on who does the, who, who, who pays for that, right? What's the pricing? Uh, who requests that? Like, in your case, was it the VCs? Like, each VC requests a different DD? Or did you go to an external auditor, like, let's say a Deloitte or EY or whatever, to pay for that and just present it to everybody at once. How does that work? No. So, so what we did was, uh, so we the, the the lead investor. So once you decide what uh, what needs to or who is going to lead the round of funding, then they are the ones that decide on the level of due diligence. At least in our case, that that was that was it. And they appointed uh, the different providers that would uh, do the due diligence. And then uh, on the term sheet, we agreed, you know, how much would that be? And, and you know, we put a cap to it because obviously we don't want to pay millions for it. So if you so pay for it, right? Yeah. So in, yeah, yeah, I think they maybe requested you pay for it. Fund. So it's funny. <laughs> yeah, maybe it depends from fund to fund. I think that some funds pay themselves and some funds ask you to to pay for it. Yeah. Um, but it's um, it's standard practice. I've seen it in in many places where the company actually pays for it. But that's what you know. Usually, you you agree on on how much, and you make sure that it's something that you are comfortable with. And I think you know, in the end. It does help the company grow up in certain areas and making sure that those things are in place, which then it helps you with your subsequent rounds. Because if you already have all those things in place, then for the next one, it will be easier. And that's the way I always try to approach it, right? Where is the positive side of that? Correct. But for our Series A, 
we will be, you know, we will have all these and we know that this is important and, and therefore we'll maintain it. Yeah, correct. I mean, like I was saying a couple of years back when we decided to open this line of business on Mars Space, I talked to dozens of, of VCs and there seemed to be like little to no consensus about the price they were paying for it, who was paying for it, like the moment, I don't know, the size of round, like what was the pricing based on? It was like a mess. I've got an Excel. I should share it or something. <laughs> like, and we're like, you know, we're just going to decide our pricing on based on our things because it's clearly like some of them were paying like 50 grand and some of them was like a percentage of the round. It was like, oh, I don't know, like these, but capped to a certain amount or only, you know, inspecting only certain things or these guys, they don't do uh, tech audits. It was just, oh, by the way, it just... We only do tech audits. We don't do financial yeah. or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But it was really weird. Like we didn't take any. We couldn't make heads nor tails about about all of these. However, we've also gotten some requests from companies wanting to audit themselves prior to an M and A or prior to going for fundraising, just because they want to work on these things in advance. This is something that, like, you guys would have considered. Did you even know that was a standard thing? Did you know about the the due diligence before you were fundraising, I take it yes, right? But yeah. is that something that you would just hire just because uh, you might know that your tech or your financials, they might need some work and you need a lot of time to work on? Or is that not your case? You guys were sufficiently prepared already. Uh, it's not something that we consider like doing a, like a preparation for, for it, like in, I don't know, getting audited before or getting checked uh, on all these items before, because in the end you don't know what uh, they will want to check. So maybe you go and you say, well, okay, let's, let's, uh, check on any potential vulnerability of the platform or let's check on, I don't know, right? But maybe, but maybe then they care more about the process for developing and hiring. So they actually don't look at the technology itself or maybe it's vice versa, right? So the thing is, you don't know what they will ask until you get asked. So chances are that maybe you do your all your checks in advance and in the end they ask you something different. Uh, so I think... I think with the DDE, the way I approach it, right? So they ask us a lot of questions. And of course, some of the things you don't have them. Like we are very, we are very, we are small still. So we, we didn't have everything. Uh, some of the things we didn't have them in place. And then you just say, well, look, these ones, we can work on it now before we close the round. Some of them will work on them after. And that's okay. So I think as long as they are not red flags, like real, you know, things that can be of a of a big risk for for the investment. I think that uh, investors understand the stage you are at, and even though they ask, they whether it's yes or no, the answer it doesn't matter as long as they know, and then you know that you can work on it later. But is that something that you get on the term sheet? As in, like, hey, if you don't fix this uh, within three months, uh, two quarters, or something we're not going to give you all of the funds or are not no. really like you, how much time you, are you given to like fix the things that they find in the audit? So usually you just speak with them and, and some of the things go into the legal uh, documents, okay. right? As in, okay, this is something that uh, the company will have to, to do within a certain period of time. Some other ones, uh, they go into a report, uh, they share it with you, and then 
you work on them. Like uh, it's not that they will take the funds away, but you agree that you will do it. And then, I mean, we will do it. Right. So it's, uh, I think it's more of a gentleman's or, or, ladies agreement in my case <laughs> that yeah. we will do it uh, within within a, a reasonable time frame and then yeah. obviously you have the board meetings that they you probably will check okay of the items that came out that we say that we would work on these ones are done and these ones are to be done and and I, as long as you address the ones that had a higher priority then you just slowly work on it Quick final questions to wrap this up because we're running out of time. First of all, is one thing that you wish you, sh you would have known when starting this round and that it definitely would have changed the outcome of the fundraising? Well, we started fundraising when the whole pandemic started. Uh, and therefore, that was an additional challenge because we started in April and we got a lot of um, kind of not really progressing type of uh, answers. Uh, and then what we realized, and this was only by having a lot of these conversations, what we realized was that Zoom is a very transactional uh, medium. It's not like going for a coffee or meeting someone in an office. And therefore just fundraising in the way we were doing it before didn't work as well. And what we realized is that we had to be more deliberate. And, and then uh, actually I was speaking with Iman at some point from Techstars and I, and because they assess a lot of companies for the program and they were also going virtual, right? And I asked him, what do the best companies that you took for the program have in common? And he said, preparation. Right. So be ultra prepared. And I took that and, and then we we prepared, a, you know, a whole deck with all the metrics, all the story of the company, everything that then would help us uh, manage the discussion as we were speaking with the with the investors. And, and that would help us convey the message much more than just having a casual chat over Zoom where you cannot really build the same rapport as you used to do when meeting in person. So mm -hmm. we made it a little bit more, we switched towards something a bit more transactional, which was much more metrics driven. But you adapted really well to the situation because it was like a rough time to go for fundraising. <laughs> yeah, it was a tough time. And we tough. had we needed a couple of months to figure out that that was the case Yeah. Uh, on, on what... And the reality is as soon as we did that and we started having those conversations with the, with the deck that we were sharing and uh, on, the, on the call and making sure that we didn't deviate too much from that so that we could convey all the messages that we needed to, uh, then the fundraising went very quickly. What was the worst thing about fundraising? What was like the worst time? Actually, the roughest time during this fundraising process for you as a person, as a businesswoman? For me, the. So the hardest. The, I would say the hardest time was really when, you know, when you see that there is a lot to, to do in the business because, again, COVID was also very positive for Cladara because, you know, there has been an acceleration of this 
uh, adoption of uh, of SaaS in companies to facilitate the remote working, right? And and the collaboration when you are not all in one place, and and therefore the company was growing. We had to be focusing on on fundraising for longer than we had anticipated. And and then it's like, okay, what should we do? Should we just stop fundraising and continue growing the company? Or should we persevere with fundraising? And and this is always like very hard balance to strike because either you stop doing one or the other, right? And and because we only have so many hours in a day. And and that was hard. And at some point, for example, we took the decision to stop fundraising for a while. And and then Because we had so many customers that wanted to onboard and we had... You're like, fuck you, VCs. Now we got customers. We don't need you, right? <laughs> well, the thing is, we still need them. Not with this works. That, that would have been... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, the more the more customers you have, the the more time you need to dedicate to, to them, of course. And, yeah. and we love our customers, so we want to give them a, a very good experience. But, but yeah, at some point then it's like, okay, now let's, let's slow down here and let's try to go back fundraising with this new strategy that we had put in place, having yeah. reflected on, on the past uh, couple of months. And, and then, yeah, that, that worked. But yeah, that I, I would say that, you know, time management was, was challenging. How about the best thing you've done? Like something you did really, really, really well that caused a turning point in your fundraising process this time? Like something you learned along the way, something you said to that specific investor, that email you said, that change in the presentation? I think it's, it's what I just mentioned. is a conversation with Iman from Techstars. Yeah, it, uh, like it, it was just asking the right question. Because that's sometimes the, the challenging thing. So we ask him you know, this question of what is the, the best companies uh, that you that you see through the through the selection process have in common, and then being able to apply it to ourselves, and and then that worked, and that made a massive difference because the type of conversations that we were having were very different. So we stopped having challenges about generic things, and we started having investors. Uh, excited about our charts and our metrics, and I think that's also something very important. Even though we were young, as a you know, we in the end um, we are but two years and a half in the life of Cladara. But since day one, we've been measuring everything we've possibly could. So therefore, we have a lot of data already, and we can show that progression. And in the end, numbers are very powerful. And the last question is, what was your worst mistake, the worst fuck up you've done in this part of the fundraising or maybe in other rounds you guys did? Something where you said like, wow, we screwed up here big time. Like, oh, that email with, you know, power presentation with somebody else's name or something like that. Have you done something like this? Or what was your worst mistake? Worst mistake. I'm a very prudent person. <laughs> it looks so. like it. Yeah. Um, what's the worst mistake that I've made in during the fundraising? Um, maybe I don't know if if it's a, a mistake, but maybe because I'm sometimes I think that we should have been more aggressive uh, at the beginning. Uh, and let me explain that. So I tend to I think when you are all the time into something you no longer, sometimes you don't see what you are achieving, right? Because 
you or I keep thinking, well, but we have all these things to do, all these things that are undone and, and you know, we are not there, it's, it's not good enough. And, and this sometimes makes you not, or makes me not talk about Cledara as highly as I should. And therefore I understate where we are. And I think that that could, that can damage right? Because uh, here it's not a matter of being humble, it's a matter of explaining why we are great, because we are, right? Like we are building something that everybody, I think every company in the planet will need, right? So so I think sometimes it's, it's getting past that and, and making sure that uh, that we convey that, that message much more powerfully and, and clearly. That's good. I mean, we don't want to go into faking until you make it, but definitely if they ask you, have you got this something but you almost have it. <laughs> if you're confident that you will get it, just say yes, right? Because there's going to be time, a negotiation, there will be the term sheet, there will be you know, contracts here and there. So in most cases, it will give you sufficient time to build what they're asking for, right? But you need to trust yourself. You need to be honest. Like, and and uh, yeah. but that's it. Brad is not very happy with me on that one because he's like, Christina, you know, you, you are too honest. Yeah. <laughs> Just not, you should not say it. They say, well, I mean, they ask me if I have it, I don't have it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you could say I'll have it next week. And it, it's true, as you say, right? Sometimes yeah. things are are not hard it's just a matter of okay let's do it now let's prioritize it now but uh, but yes <laughs> let's think it this way the next time you got this uh, imposter syndrome effect right I, oh no i don't have it i don't deserve this i think somebody else will not be that honest and he or she will take your money so you gotta you gotta find the balance i think yeah. that's, that's a good point uh to uh wrap this up christina you've got this one last minute you got this camera this microphone, what should our audience know about you? What's going on with Clara? What, you know, uh, last message for our audience. Last message. So, well, we've uh, yeah closed our uh, seed round very recently and we will be hiring. So if, uh, you know, check out our our jobs board and if anyone is interested in in coming to work with us we'll be delighted to to speak with you of course and and then um yes if if you ever have any question around anything and you think i can help or brad can help or anyone at Cladara can help please reach out we are always very happy to help the community because uh, the community has helped us a lot so it's um it's a very powerful thing to to do helping others and and giving first, that is one of the mantras of, uh, of Techstars, which I believe very much in. We also believe it because it's one of the mandates of Star Prime as well. So I think we can wrap it up here. Thank you very much, Christina. Thank you very much for our audience as well. See you in the next episode. Thank you, Alex. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?